if you're making choices, strategic choices, and the alternative to the one you picked is stupid, then that's not a strategic choice. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. This week, Bryce and I have a guest joining us. Bryce, who is it? We do indeed, Marcus. Our guest this week is John May. John is the uh, co-founder of the Uncertainty Project, which is something that I have become really excited about uh, and and have been following closely. I was introduced to it by my my good friend from Google, Chris Butler, and uh, I, I I I think there's a lot as we'll talk about that overlaps between what they're working on and what we're working on. John's got a great background in agile and business transformation, going to back through Atlassian to Motorola. Tell us a little bit about the Uncertainty Project. So it, it's a community-led collection of all the great stuff that we're seeing emerge uh, around decision-making. So Kyle, I've known Kyle for a good, you know, six, seven years now. And this is Kyle we're, Bird we're, for, for folks. Uh, Kyle, Kyle Bird, yeah. yeah and we're yeah. both voracious readers. We love we love to see kind of the new ideas that are percolating. And we both came out of the the space of helping enterprises try to connect their strategy to their execution. And this goes under a lot of different names, ranging from business transformation to scaled agile. But but that's really the core of it is you, you've got a strategy extending all the way to the top and you've got execution happening with teams all the way at the bottom. And it, it's a tremendous challenge, no matter what what terms you put on it. And, and some of the things that were really catching our eye were trying to bring a little more thought to how decisions get made uh, in that challenge of connecting strategy to execution. And, you know, for a lot of us, you know, Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow was kind of a, in our learning journeys, that was kind of a, a common thread where all of us just Boom. had to take mind blowing. Exactly. Mind blowing. Thinking about how you think, you know, so many people have said that was that was the time I had to take a step back and and really start to kind of revisit a, a lot of the assumptions and, and the way I've approached what I do. And and we recognize that that with that and everything that, that's been following around really starting to study decision making as a practice, um, it, it's just really exciting. And, and I think for a lot of us that have been in this space for for upwards of a decade or more, there's been some nagging issues. And, and a lot of that comes down to where are the decisions getting made, especially strategic decisions. And especially in this VUCA world, I know you guys talk about that a lot here, strategic decisions as you're navigating uncertainty. So, so that's really the heart of what we're trying to do at the Uncertainty Project is try to bring some of those great ideas that all of us are kind of sifting through and, and bring a community together to say, Here's what we're finding. Tell us what you're finding, and then trying to make it practical. Help people uh, start to to take these as building blocks, and, and get closer to what we call a decision architecture, which is ultimately deciding how you decide. I love that. You know, uh, when 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 I first read Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, which was when I was at at the uh, Command and General Staff College, going through the U.S. Army's Red Team Leader Course, I don't think I slept that week. Um, that I was reading it because every, every night I'd, I'd finish reading the book and close it. And I'd sit there and stare at the ceiling and think about, do why do I believe this? Do I act? Is this something I actually believe, or is this my my what biases are feeding into this into this this thought that I have here? And uh, it 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 was both both mind expanding and terrifying to me to to learn all of the different ways that that our brains delude us into thinking that we are thinking when we're actually just uh, rearranging our prejudices or rearranging our biases, uh, however you want to look at it. So I love well, it's that. It's funny, Bryce, my, my, my experience with that book too, I wasn't ready for it when I bought it. So it, it's funny. I've got, um, I've got a bookmark in there from a flight I took. I was traveling to Asia at the time and I bought it ready for the long, long flight. Oh. And 
and, and I, I got a ways into it, but to your point, it's mind blowing. And, and it, it's something that, that really requires you to sit back and think about how, you know, make sense of it all. So it took me years to go back to it. I've learned that's not a unique experience. A lot of people bought it, put it on the shelf yeah, right. and only later were able to go back to it when the timing was right. And that's a big part of, I, I think what we're feeling is we're feeling like the timing is right right now. Um, yeah. A lot of people are engaging these conversations around how they make decisions. The importance of it has seemingly been growing and, and, and bringing it a practice-based approach to it, um, it. It's, it's been, it's been really fun to see the response. I just want to share a stat on that book. Amazon released some data from uh, Kindle. It's one of the highest purchased books, but one of the most unfinished. And again, <laughs> really? not, not because it's a not, wow. yeah, not because it's a bad book. Because as you say, everyone gets to read it and then like gets a part way through and stops and goes, "Right, I've got to go back all the way and start again." And totally, yeah. Well, I, I, I think, think it's it. you know, I think it's terrifying for people. A lot of people, you yeah. know, it's it's interesting. You know, I I think when after after uh after i read the book like i said i was going through the, the the army's red team leader course at the time and then after we finished the book we watched the wonderful interview that Kahneman did with the yet to be discredited charlie rose um um on pbs and which is a fascinating interview if you have an opportunity to watch it and at the end of the interview after they've been talking about all these different biases and heuristics and, and, and the ways that our brains, you know, take shortcuts and stuff. Charlie Rose ends the interview after an hour by saying, Dr. Kahneman, is there any hope for humanity? And he says, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, and I think that's, I think that's why people don't finish the book is because, you know, you know, he he, he just shook his head and says, I don't think so. Um, And it's like, wow. And on that, on that study thought, you know, but I mean, look at everything that's happened since that, since that interview, which was back in, in like, you know, I don't know when it was, but it was before 2015. And and when, and since the book came out, I I would, I I, I think we'd have to conclude that uh, his pessimism was well-founded. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Marcus, I, I love your statistic on that too, because, um, you, you know as well as I do that in, in you know enterprise settings, business transformation conversations, it's incredibly pragmatic. So there's so much to digest in a book like that. It deserves a, a, a pretty extended conversation just to make sense of well, what do we do with this? Right? This is fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it takes you don't get it the first time. You got to keep peeling it back a little bit. But there's I'm there's a there. there. Yeah, there's I've a there. That I book think so many times. And that's that's what's happening now. I think people are feeling starting to figure out ways to bring you know some of the things they've learned there into their day to day, and and that's going to be an ongoing process for for years now. But as we start to think about decision making and and really shine a light on an area that um, you know we like to say that these were implicit practices, right? There's so many decisions being made all the time in in any company setting, um, but bringing making that a little more explicit. Uh, it, it, it feels like it's really ripe for that, right? Given, you know, how remote and hybrid our settings are, um, you know, gathering at an office and jumping on the whiteboard as we used to do in the day, um, that, that's, that's not where decision-making is sparked anymore. So what's going to replace that? Uh, a lot of work still to be done on that. Well, you know, the, na- your, 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 the name you guys have chosen for your initiative, the Uncertainty Project, I think really speaks to it. You know, there was a, we went through a long era and I would submit it goes all the way back to at least the 1980s. You know, my, my mother was a was an up and coming executive back in the 1980s. And, and then it was all about Japanese management. You know, there was like theory zero, theory Z or what theory zero, theory Z. I can't remember which we'll, we'll find it. Um, but, you know, there was the art of Japanese management and stuff. And then you got, you know, you moved on to the 90s and you got good to great and stuff like this. And I think that I think there was we went through several decades where people thought that you just needed to crack the code, right? And and then along comes Kahneman and says, yeah, there isn't really a code to crack. And and, and I think that that's, that's deeply unsettling to people to deal, to, to, to be in that realm of uncertainty. And, you know, it, but then you go back and you look and, and how many of the companies that are discussed in good to great are still great? How many of them are still in existence? And, and that, that is a nice coupling to, to one of my, to me, one of the most troubling parts of Kahneman's book, which is where he he's talking about regression of the mean 
and he does his experiment with having Israeli fighter pilots throw uh, shekels behind them and see who can who can come closest to hitting the mark, and then shows them that doesn't you know just because you landed hit the bullseye the first time, if you do it twenty times, you're no better than anyone else. He then extrapolates that to companies too, and you know just because we mm-hmm. you know some company has has a period of amazing success, is that really because they they figured something out? out that is profound and and actionable or is it because they just got lucky i mean i think there are lessons that you can take from the success of organizations but i also think his point is well taken that you know again all you have to do is go back and look at good to great to see that that these a lot of these companies didn't crack the code and you mentioned luck and that that's a that's a big part of i think what we're trying to emphasize as well is um, it's so easy with decision making to to do what they call resulting, right? Look at the outcome, and then if the outcome's good, your decision is good, right? No, wrong. So this new emphasis on it, it is a practice, and, and how you attack that is one that uh, can can generate some consistency, especially as how you start collaborating with others, which right. has emerged as one of the common themes. The dialogue that takes place on the way to a decision is is so undervalued and underutilized. I, I think that's been a really healthy trend that we've seen. Um, you know, how do we make that happen? But then at the end of the day, to your point, um, luck plays a big role. And, and whether you're looking at a corporate level or even, you know, somewhere you're making a decision just for the next quarter, um, there's a lot that's not in your control and not that, that there's a lot that's not in your influence. So bringing it, you know, decision making as a practice, being a decision architecture, you can you can stand behind and feel good. You can sleep well at night knowing that you you, you applied a great practice to the, the challenge at hand. Even if even if things maybe don't go your way because the world's crazy, right? Right. So and that's what's yes. critical. Is it, I just want to just hit hit a point on there. It, you know, I remember talking to 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 the founders of Airbnb. I mean, look, let's look at what happened there. These are brilliant guys, undoubtedly. But it, but 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 if you if you distill this down, this begins with, you know, a couple of guys looking at the fact there's this major tech conference happening in San Francisco, all the hotel rooms are sold out. They post something, I think on Craigslist saying, Hey, you know, you could, you could sleep on our floor and we'll give you breakfast for this much money and are overwhelmed with requests from people and then figure out how to turn that into a business. If they, you know, if, if, if they weren't there when that, if they hadn't read the articles about how all the hotels were, 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 were filling up during this tech conference, if they had not been in San Francisco there, they still would have been brilliant guys, but would they have created Airbnb? Great, something else probably, but it's opportunity, isn't it? Yeah. And that's where we see people making a difference. Yeah, it's such a great story. And, and, and I think, again, it's hindsight. We're looking back at that decision to put that ad in, but um, another really exciting thing is to start to give some attention to things like beliefs and assumptions, right? So assumptions right. testing is a real popular topic right now. So, so you can say that that those leaders of Airbnb, whether they knew this is what they were doing or not, they, they were making an assumption that that ad in the paper would get a response and, and they tested it very cheaply. And, and, right. and then that was just part of the process that led them to, to all the goodness. But um, I, I think, I know in my career, you know, looking at, digging deeper into the mental models and the beliefs that, that, you know, we stand upon to make our decisions. And and then even down the road, looking at the assumptions that are the foundations of our plans and, and making those visible, making those explicit. Um, that's not a world I was taught. That's not a world I grew up in, but we're seeing more and more of that as no, this, this needs to be on the table. This needs to be what we talk about. And, and that seems super promising and, and new. And, and again, a lot to unpack, a lot to digest with it but it, it feels fundamentally different in an exciting way. Right. So and I see it's, uh, it's central to dealing with the uncertainty that we're, that, that you've taken the name from is, is something Marcus and I hear all the time from people in our programs is why isn't this taught in business school? Why isn't this taught in, in high school? Why isn't this taught in secondary school? And, and that's because, I think there is this awareness that the tools, the techniques, the ways of looking at things, ways of making decisions that we are taught are just not well-suited for the level of uncertainty, the level of ambiguity, the level of complexity that exists in the world today. I, I think there's a real that paradox. There's not a, yeah, go ahead, Marcus. Yeah, I think there's a real paradox with this in the whole agile, agile arena because... You know, we're talking about strategy to execution. 
we're talking about decision making as a practice and something we talk about is devolved decision making. How do you as the executive push that decision making down? And if we're talking about uncertainty, then we're working in that complex domain of Kinevin where we need emergent practice where we have to test and learn. But the paradox for me is that the executive want clarity, they want certainty. And they're trying to drive that through, but into an uncertain environment where you want to push that capability down to make decisions at the front line where things are happening quickly. But because they don't understand that level of uncertainty, they pull back on the reins and keep the decision making at the top. That never cascades down to the front line where we know it can be more effective, mission command style from the military. So how are you seeing the strategy to execution manifesting? And who is the uncertainty project for and focused at? Well, we're definitely trying to bring this decision-making conversation back to strategy. And, and that cascade you described, uh, I, I mean, think about it. We, we were all trained kind of in linear thinking models. Let's pull a lever and let's watch that cascade, as you described it, you know, flow all the way down. But it, I think what we're sensing now is it, it takes a lot of humility for a leader to say, I am working in a complex system. This is a complex adaptive system that that I'm, I'm overseeing. And and your, your approach to trying to lead within that and drive change within that has to be different. And we're just on the cusp of that, that understanding of, of what that implies so, so we're caught still with a lot of leaders that are that are very good at what they do, but the mental models they grew up with and what made them successful um, are, are different than what we're talking about within the uncertainty project. And the humility it's going to take for somebody to say, I, I can still lead, I can still influence, but it's going to take a very different shape and it's it's not nearly as direct. Um, this this will take a long time, if ever, to, to start to really... And, the, and this ties in, yeah, this ties in with transformational leadership, doesn't it, Bryce, that we were talking about last yep. week, and you were talking about with the Army, that this this leadership as a collective capability now has to transform. You know, while we're doing agile transformations and digital transformations and organizational transformation, the number one reason why agile transformations are failing is because of leadership. And again, the irony of this is that I thought that leadership itself isn't transforming. And I think a great word you said there, John, humility. How many leaders and executives today actually have the humility to A, recognize this, but B, then do something about it, to accept it and shift their own capabilities, to unlearn, which Barry O'Reilly talks about, unlearn a lot of those old school behaviors and the old school teachings, and then learn new stuff. And which is hopefully what the uncertainty project is providing that understanding of. So there's another yeah. word that I would throw in there besides humility, which is courage. And, you know, because I, I think a lot of, I think most leaders are deeply insecure at a certain level. There's a lot of imposter syndrome. There's a lot of uncertainty about <clears throat> whether I come across as a, as a good leader or not an effective leader. And I think that people who are coming from that position of insecurity as leaders feel the need to have all the answers, feel the need to, to stand up and tell people what to do because they're trying to mask the fact that they don't, they're not really sure that they should be there. Whereas you look at the most confident leaders, the most secure leaders, these are the people who are comfortable saying, right team, here's the problem. Here's the challenge that we need to deal with. What are your best ideas? Let's discuss this because they, they know that they don't lose anything by asking and that they in fact gain a lot by 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 asking the questions and then their job becomes the one becomes synthesizing the discussion moving the discussion from divergent thinking to convergent thinking driving things to a decision and then clearing away like an icebreaker for that decision to be implemented and that is that is courage that's a courageous act and so i think it's courage and humility that's required yeah, I couldn't agree more. We, we talk about the courage to say, I don't know, right? One, we, right? We've got some principles up on the uncertainty project. And one of them is to normalize, I don't know, because uh, acknowledging the uncertainty is a critical step uh, to to being able to open the door to a lot of these you know new refinements of practice that we're, we're trying to talk about. And, and it flies in the face. I mean, you know, Bryce, you've written some great biographies of great leaders, but think about that shelf of books, right? These are great strategic thinkers that um, are bold. Um, you know, sometimes they fly in the face of convention. They, uh, you know, how collaborative they are, you know, some do, some don't. 
And it, it's it's a model we've we've all grown up with, and we think we we think of a bold leader. That that's what courage means, I, I guess. If right. you, if you read the books, and this idea of bringing decision making into more of a practice, more of a collaborative activity, um, such that you can decentralize it, like Bryce was saying, um, this will this will drive some unlearning. And uh, and I think honestly, if we peel it back, we'll see that these great leaders that we've read all read all these biographies about, they were probably doing this anyway. Right. I mean, that's one of the points that, you know, it, that I that I made in, in in the book Red Teaming is that if you look at Steve Jobs, if you look at, at, at someone like that, they're natural red teamers. They're looking at things with a critical, with a contrarian eye. They're asking the tough questions. They're not they're not willing to just accept because as an answer. And they're they're forcing their teams to justify decisions rather than just to, you know, to 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 go with whoever speaks the most eloquently, whoever speaks the most powerfully on this. And, and that, you know, is one of the aims of, of, of what led me to, to, to write that book was helping I say it in the introduction, you know, most of us are not Steve jobs and most companies don't have a Steve jobs, but that doesn't mean that you can't learn the behaviors, the practices, the tools, the techniques that would help you think like a Steve jobs, help you lead like a Steve jobs, help you lead like an Alan Mulally uh, and, and use those to be the leader your organization needs you to be. But you, 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 you say something that is so important, John, and it's something that we've been preaching this now for three years, that decision-making needs to be a practice, not a process. And, you know, it's funny because I think the first time that I shared this with a client and it was a, it was a big, you know, fortune 50 company, his response was, well, damn, at our organization, decision-making isn't even a process. It's an event. And he said, you know, we, we do a, we do a quarterly offsite where, where the senior leadership team gets together and, and makes decisions. And then we don't revisit them for another, another three months. And, and that, I mean, that's just, and be damned if they change. right. <laughs> and, and you just can't lead an org. You can't lead that way now. And, no. you know, it's, it's so essential for people to recognize that their their fundamental job as leaders is decision making writ large and that doesn't mean being the decider necessarily it means engaging in the process the practice rather of decision making collectively as a leadership team ideally yeah and, and one of the things that agile brought is is this emphasis on short feedback loops right and then that's rippled through you know, we talk about business agility now, trying to bring that same idea to shortening feedback loops, and it's around these decisions. So, you know, back in the day, stable times, like go back to the 90s, go back to the 80s, tell me how far we have to go back, where you could lay out a strategy for a couple of years and then just go execute it. And, you know, that, that seems, you know, farcical now. So this idea of getting together quarterly, but having a practice behind it to both make new decisions, revisit old decisions, um, and 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 bring an attention to strategy to bear that I think is is one that that has to be that has to be a practice as well. So strategic decision making is a big thing that we're talking about. Going back to your Steve Jobs example, that the parts of those books that I love are how he made bold choices. He he was willing to make the hard calls, and and I, I'm sure those examples are all over the place. But teaching strategy as an integrated set of choices, like, like some of the, you know, people like Roger Martin are people that are influencing right. a lot of what we're thinking right now. And, and his emphasis that it's an integrated set of choices that precedes the planning. So, you, you know, some people point to their roadmaps and their planning and say, that's my strategy. And <laughs> I, I, I think, and this was my experience actually in agile transformations and business transformations. It's there was this assumption that strategic choices, difficult, bold choices, ruling things out were, were happening somewhere upstream. But then when I would come in the door, I saw a list of over a hundred projects in their portfolio that they were actively running. And I saw mm -hmm. everything at priority one. And that's the residue of the absence of bold choices. So well, absolutely. It's interesting that you you mentioned Roger Martin. I mean, I I'm a big fan of of of, of Roger Martin's framework, playing to win. I will say it's also the the very thing that led me to first write that strategy that that, that decision making needed to be a practice, not a process. And the reason I I say that is because I was working with a a large multinational that, like a lot of large multinationals, uses the playing to win framework to make 
make strategic, develop strategies and make decisions. And what I saw there was that the way in which play, Roger Martin's playing to win framework had been reduced to a series of check boxes mm-hmm. and, and that there wasn't any thinking really going on as much as there was checking boxes and kind of for, you know, where to play, how to win, you know, is a really powerful thing. But if it just becomes a cookie cutter, you know, I mean, if it just becomes a kabuki dance where you, where, where you, you've already decided where you want to play and, and you make up a, a, a rationale that fits into the box on the template to justify it. And there's no discussion about whether that's true or not. It's simply, did we, did we fill in that box on the plane to win, you know, flow chart? Yes, we did. Okay. Let's move on to the next box. And, 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 you know, and, and, and that's, that's what happens to the best decision-making processes is they over time become checklist. And, you know, one of the reasons why the U S army developed decision support red teaming was to overcome the deficiencies in the military decision-making process. MDMP is a great process as we've talked about on the show before. The problem is, is the way it's used is actually abusing that process. And the key area there is you know one of the great virtues of MDMP is you come up with a course of action, you then have to stop and come up with two other courses of action and weigh the three of them together to pick the right one. But 99% of the time, under the cost of speed, what happens is people satisfy, so they pick their choice of action, and then they spend about 60 seconds kind of with two ridiculous ideas to fill in to the other two boxes. Yep. And then they show it to the commander and say, look, I came up with two other courses of action. I think this is the right one. And the commander says, well, duh, the others are totally unworkable. And then they 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 go and do that. It totally defeats the purpose that it was created for though. And that's why it got to the point in the military where they said, you know, we need a second set of eyes on this to actually say, is there another course of action? What are we choosing not to do? Yeah, that, that, that's we've been pointing to kind of the complacency of decision making. If you aren't diverging before you converge, um, it, it seems efficient, but but you're missing out on something. And, and then your point, your point about kind of a silly alternative, Roger Martin, he was on a podcast last week and he said, look, if if you're making choices, strategic choices and the alternative to the one you picked is stupid, then that's not a strategic choice. You know, this right. is, these are choices. These are all good choices. Right. And whether you. Um, are able to, you know, make it, make a call, defend your choice. And then the other thing, like Chris Butler has written some things on even overstatements that I love this idea. Look, there are two good things and it, I need to clearly communicate that I will prefer this even over this other good thing and using that as a way to communicate strategic intent, but leave so much open to decentralized decision-making for the people that are, are reading your even overstatements. So Powerful little actionable techniques like that. That's the bread and butter of the uncertainty project. We're seeking those out and and trying to to help people understand how to put those into use to their day-to-day. I think what those are, you're almost setting principles for decision-making. Because decision-making is hard. And if you do want to cascade and devolve that capability, then if those individuals in receipt of that power who often don't want it. They don't want to make those tough calls. But if you've given them a set of principles with which to fall back on, you know, even over, it's a really clear thing that they can, you know, just break out when they get to a decision where they're going, oh, there's, there's two options here, revert back to first principles. What, what were we taught? What were we, you know, bounded by? And I think this is where, again, decision support red teaming, the clues in the name, you know, this is to support decision making because it needs to be. Decision making is really hard, even more so in today's you know contested and convoluted world that we're in. There's a lot of confusion. Everywhere's lacking courage to make the right decisions. So any support that you can have to make a decision should be welcome with open arms at whatever level you sit at. If you're hubristic enough to think you don't need that, then you're going to go off a cliff. But if you've got a set of tools and techniques, a set of principles, or a capability through your people to make a better decision then you are a fool if you don't maximize the utility of that capability. This is good stuff. Let's take a short break here. When we come back, I'd like to to transform our conversation a little bit more into the specific realm of agile and business transformation. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to 
the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. So welcome back. John, you and I both have a long background in agile and agile transformations. Yours way longer than mine. Let's dive in. Let's talk about how you've seen agile evolve. Because you were in the days of the manifesto, the software-driven agile, which is what it was intended for. But it's clearly evolved over that last two decades now. What's your perspective on that? Well, the essence of it is the feedback loops. I mentioned this before. So yeah, back as I was a young software developer, Kent Beck published Extreme Programming, which was a super practical way to get in there. And and, and it, it shook up the way you approached pulling a team together and writing code. And that was fantastic. But I joke that, you know, did, why did he have to put the word extreme on it? I was sitting in Motorola <laughs> where, you know, you couldn't have a more conservative, quality focused culture and trying to sell anything called extreme into that culture was a very hard road. And that was the road I, I was on. Um, it, it, it's just a funny story. When when Dean Leffingwell decided to call his scaled agile frameworks safe, I, I, safe. I do believe it was a direct response to that. He knew he could get in the door of enterprise with something called safe in a way that can't come <laughs> And he's done that very well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, trying that out and then, and then also it was not a great fit. I was working with, we were, we were building software that supported uh, private networks. These were police radios that were expanding into nationwide networks back in the nineties. So definitely a system engineering context where there were products within the systems, software within the products, but, you know, being trained as an electrical engineer and, and, and living in system engineering context, that importance of system thinking was was never far away. And, and I think that was an important learning for me too, is looking at, at at whatever you're up to as as part of a larger system. And then as Agile started to scale and we saw what works well for a team, you can't just throw three or four teams together and expect everything to, to work out. That's no. where everybody started talking about alignment challenges, right? How do we connect strategy execution? I've empowered my team, they're autonomous, but now I've got one going north, one going south, one going east and one going west. What do you have to say about that? And and those became the challenges that we 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 tackled for another ten years. Is how do we bring just enough practice, just enough, uh, you know, collaboration aids, if you will, so that these teams and and the leaders that are trying to make decisions to guide these teams uh, can keep their sanity. And uh, we're we're still working with that today, but um, this 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 sweet spot here of empowered teams. And uh, clearly communicated strategic intent from leadership. Um, that's why I'm so bullish on a lot of this decision-making content. I, I think clearly communicated decisions that are um, put decisions that are put together collaboratively, reaching out across and down into the organization. Um, it, it really can help scratch some of these itches, some of these challenges that always plagued us with the agile transformations as we took them to scale. That's that's really interesting. I think. We talk about the three C's, which is about to evolve to the four C's, but the first C is clarity. And one of the things I've always seen as a problem within agile transformations is, as you said, you start to scale. The scaling element is normally the teams. So you're scaling the number of teams, which is normally across and up a little bit, but you're not scaling up across the whole organization and into business and into the sort of the executive level. So as you said, to get that clear intent down into that scaled team area, I, I think is absolutely fundamental and one of the biggest struggle points and pain points because as those teams scale, you create more dependencies between the teams, you create more confusion rather than clarity. But anything that you can do from the top to ensure that conduit is passing information down and the clear instruction, the clear decision-making authority stop at the level it needs to do, I, I think is one of the things that can unlock the success of agile transformations or not. Yeah. And another another thing that I think is exciting is is the emphasis in agile on the customer, customer centricity. This is another huge key to alignment. And 
we talked about Roger Martin a little while ago, you know, this idea of where do I play? How do I win? Um, in a business setting, it's pretty clear that, you know, where you play is about your markets. It's about your customer segments. It's about your jobs to be done if that's where you want to go. But one of the things I think that is very much within our sites is no matter where you are in the organization, you know, top to bottom, even down at the team level, everybody wants to be a strategic thinker. This was my experience, especially recently at Atlassian. Mm. I think everybody knows that this is their growth. If you want to get that next promotion, if you want to show that you're growing as an individual in a large enterprise, you know, you want to have strategy in your title or you want to be able to say you built a strategy. And that's great. I, I think mm -hmm. helping people learn these skills so that they can grow their careers and speak strategically. This is something we should be encouraging everywhere. And that's that's part of this decision making practice conversation. So, so, so I think when you bring this customer centricity back and say, look, almost anybody in this company, whatever you do, you can talk about who you're serving. And let's call them the customer. They could be internal, they could be external, but you're serving somebody. And then bringing some of this mindset of, well, let's make some difficult strategic choices on how you serve them, right? Because we, we've all seen cases where anybody that tries to be everything to everybody, um, this is a play in, in, in a lot of our, our modern corporations. Right. So even if you're a small team, making some bold choices on who you're going to serve and how you're going to you know, succeed on that. Um, these are strategic skills that are relevant almost anywhere. And, and that's exciting as well, because taught at the foundational levels, and then as people start to grow in their careers, you're only going to get better. That links to what we, you and I talk about. You know, you say te teaching this at that level. I think I, I know one of the missing things is leadership and teaching the capability of leadership. But just as you were talking then, I was seeing that, you know, strategy is missing from agile. It's not something that's discussed. It's not really a word that crops up. It's something that other people do upstairs. And I think, as you said, if you want to get on in your career, if you want to be effective as an agilist, wherever you are, at the front line, touching the customer, facing outwards, facing upwards, if you're not understanding strategy and what that truly means and applying that strategic thinking, if you're not clear on what leadership means, then they're two elements that are going to mean that you stay in that level all along and your peers who get it will start to quickly move ahead. Yeah. And Marcus, I know you've seen this too. So in, in Agile and especially Agile at scale, um, there's backlogs everywhere, right? At various levels of resolution, but backlogs, backlogs, backlogs. And then inevitably people are prioritizing those backlogs. And then the question comes up, how should I prioritize the backlogs? And if you climb that and start asking why enough times, it's going to lead you to probably an emperor has no clothes moment of where is the strategy. So we found that Correct. no matter what you're working with, the, the why this should be prioritized over that, the argument for that comes back to somebody's strategic bold choices and how well those are understood, communicated, whether they even happened is another big reason why I think you see a lot of struggle you know, large backlogs with everything at the top priority. Um, this is a symptom, and and I, I think we're starting to see some 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 areas where we can go and and explain how strategy can alleviate that. Well, this is so important because you know this is something where I think business can learn a lot from the military. I will tell you the very first time that I came, I brought red team thinking at scale into a large multinational corporation. I brought with me as one of my co-instructors, co uh, a, a recently retired colonel who'd been one of the leaders of the red teaming program in, for the U.S. Army. And we, we, we got to our first practical application session where we were going to apply some red team thinking tools, pre-mortem analysis, assumptions challenge to, to an actual strategy. And the the senior leader came in and, and told the, the the group of students that were going through this, we're going to now shift from theoretical to, to practical application, passed out the actual strategy. In a panic, the colonel came and took me aside, waving the six-page document at me. And he says, are they joking? I, I said, what do you mean? He said, do they actually think this is a strategy? He, he says, this is a wish list. And he was right. It was six pages okay. of bullet points saying, we're going to expand in this area. We're going to double our, our revenue by by doubling our customers, by doing this. And so he said, there's no strategy here. This is like somebody, some kids sat down and wrote a list of things they wanted Sandra to bring them on Christmas morning. And they've sent that to the North Pole and are now going to wait for it to come. He's like, I mean, this is, where's the strategy here? And, and he wasn't wrong. 
you know, and, and, you know, I've seen that time and time again, that, that often what passes for strategy in business is really, you know, kind of a, 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 a detailed wish list. Or, or that might show up as goals. So that's something we're looking right. at literally just this month in the uncertainty project is what is the relationship of goals? Um, you know, as we connect strategy execution and some people will, will say the goals are my strategy, but I, I think um, there, there's a lot more to that conversation on how you arrive at your goals. And that's, that's what we're Correct. trying to feel. That's what your right. strategy is. And then you, you bring know, in OKRs and all the other stuff. And you compare that to a military strategy, which is more detailed than a business needs. But, but I mean, there's a lot of daylight between those two places A military strategy you're getting into, you know, you know, well, when you get down to the actual orders being issued based on the strategy, you know, this, this group, you know, group X will move to location Y at time Z, you know, and it's very specific and, you know, they're in between there is a happy medium where, where I think organizations need to be in terms of having done some actual strategic thinking, having tested their assumptions, having looked at alternatives, having considered the ways their plans could fail, having developed contingencies, having, having, having looked at the way that potential external events could impact the execution of the strategy as you roll forward, then, you're, then you've got something that's really robust, that's flexible, that's resilient, and that you can actually begin executing with confidence, even in today's VUCA world. And, and something I know that you know, you've, you've definitely covered in Red Team Thinking is the complaint that we hear about strategy and decision-making is, I don't have time for that. You know, where, am I, where am I supposed yeah. to find the time to go do that? And, and this gets into something I think you covered recently around reactive versus proactive, right? We, we, the default is reactive, right? And people get rewarded for being very good at putting out fires. So where are we going to find, <laughs> where are we going to find the time? You know, it, 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 and, and in a way, I know you're familiar with the concept of a choice architecture from the book Nudge. It, yes. it, it's almost, I haven't really thought of this deeply, but it's almost like we need to use a choice architecture for strategy that lets us have the room to go build a strategy. Like how do we, how do we nudge people to carve out time for strategic thinking? Because that's gotta be step one. We hear that over and over and over again. And then the once once you have that, then good dialogue, which is, I, this is another key thing that we're hearing is it's not just grab the data, go make a decision. This dialogue of, you know, truth seeking and, and understanding the data and asking questions. You mentioned the great leaders were always asking the great questions. Well, imagine that's happening throughout an organization. That that would be a little different than I, I think the norm today. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I love that you said putting out fires because I mean, this is something we talk about all the time. When we when we go into an organization, one of the conversations I like to have with senior leaders is, so tell me what you guys are really good at. What What is your superpower? Number one answer. Number one answer. So we're really good at putting out fires. And and I always say the same thing. I say, you know, we actually are, we, we train senior fire leads for the U.S. Forest Service, National Park Service, and FEMA. So we actually have clients whose job it is to put out fires. And let me tell you something. If you're not one of those clients, then what you what, when you tell me you're really good at putting out fires, what you're really telling me is you're really good at starting fires. I love that. Because if your actual job is not putting out fires, that's not something to be proud of. That means that you're in an organization that is constantly, you know, creating crises and having to deal with problems that get created. And I think, you know, I mean, that's the thing is, is, is we have to move beyond this. And, and, and John, you've hit the nail on the head is, is the excuse, the lie that organizations tell themselves is we don't have time for strategy. We don't have time for thinking. We have to react. The only reason you have to react is because you haven't thought, because you haven't developed strategy. If you develop you strategy, didn't the time. you thought, if you'd taken that time up front, you wouldn't be reacting. You wouldn't be constantly putting out fires. Well, but it's a change in mindset path, that's required. It is. And it's a permission to, to take some time. Right. So, so Marcus, you know, we saw like an emphasis on quarterly planning emerge from the, the agile at scale community over the last number of years, you know, big, get everybody in a big room. and PI planning. Yeah. Sure. But, but there was something to the idea of like, there was permission to, to hold that event, right. It was a ceremony and, and, you know, love it or hate it. Um, it, it did buy you some time to do some important things. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if you mentioned the, the, the three, day offsite with some leaders, right? That's, you know, whether it happens annually or quarterly, but 
I'm wondering if if that could morph into something that becomes that that permitted thinking space uh, to get the right dialogue with a better practice in place. Yeah, um, right. it, and and it, it has there has to be something that that puts that structure around. This is where we think, and and otherwise we we do we do know how the day and the week get away from us. Well, that's one of the things I, I attended several big room planning sessions quarterly, and when you get a lot of people together and they they fall flat on their face. That's a lot of time, effort, and money wasted. And, and that was one of my proposals was instead of doing big room planning, let's first do big room thinking. If we've got a day put aside, again, permission to take a day, let's do a day or half day the week before for big room thinking and then a half day for big room planning. And, and trust me, that half day of planning, you will achieve everything you would achieve in that day and a lot more because you spent the other half thinking. But the minute you don't do that and you put straight people into a room about planning, they're diving into solutioneering. They're satisficing. They're not stopping and thinking. They're going with, as Bryce used the word earlier, the caution of speed, got to get stuff done. We're all double busy. And we don't allow ourselves to just slow down to speed up. But if you force that, and, and again, this goes back to how do you change mindset? You change behaviors. That behavioral shift is big room thinking first, big room planning to follow, then execute accordingly with the plans that come out of that. And it works. Bryce, you mentioned firefighting. A close cousin of that is the the get shit done mentality. Yeah. And and, and one of the one of the my so I was indoctrinated in lean, you know, all the way back to my college days. And one of my favorite ideas from there is is maximize the work not done. And I and I think your think your thinking planning or your thinking room concept, Marcus, this is where they could really start to say, hey, out of these gigantic backlogs, we're all dragging with us quarter to quarter to quarter. <laughs> Every time. How do we maximize the work not done with some bold strategic choices? And 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 that would be a game changer. Right. Right. But you know, again, it it can't be it can't be a a bunch of stale pale males, you know, going to a golf course somewhere and you know, smoking cigars while they talk about strategy. It has to be something that is rigorous. It has to be something that is challenging. It has to be something that is that is focused and leads to an outcome. Leads to an yeah. outcome. And it's got to leverage this new distributed workforce, right? So I, I I think we've all seen how a Slack channel can get you communicating, but the structure and and it doesn't add up to what we're talking about here. Yeah. But but that same communication path. With, you know, could be leveraged into a practice like we're talking about, and and now you know your distributed workforce, you're 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 leveraging them pretty effectively for for these purposes. I think you said it, Bryce. We need tools and techniques to do this. And I think if you read, to, I'm just I'm just casting mine back now. When I was doing this, if I'd have had the tools and techniques that we've got, if I was able to red team my backlog as effectively as we red team problems and strategies, then you could have really made that backlog of focused capability with clear priorities. Not, <laughs> you said, everything's number one priority. Everywhere I go, you know, I spent 18 months in oil and gas not too long ago and everything was a number one priority. So frustrating, but because they, people don't know how to do that effectively. They're not armed with the tools and techniques. They've got ideas, but they've got to get permission. But if you've got the tools and techniques that allow you all, again, behavioral shift, to do that, then the mindset shift starts to follow and therefore you start to do this as a practice. And you have to be, you know, you, you, it's liberating to be ruthless about some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, and rigorous is, is perhaps a politer term. But, you know, one thing that we do as an organization, because we, we constantly drink our own coffee, is every quarter, Marcus and I look at everything we're doing. And we ask ourselves, if we were starting over from scratch, would we still be doing this? And, you know, and and then if the answer is no, then kill it, you know, take it out back and put a bullet in its head. Because, because why keep doing things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't voluntarily do. And yet how many organizations have projects, have, have things in their backlog that are there just because nobody, nobody's willing to speak up and say, you know, that was a stupid idea to begin with. We shouldn't have done it. Let's just, let's just. But how, but how much time does that take us, Bryce? And how much Not time very does that? Long. Exactly. That's right. the whole point, isn't it? So, but to take the time to do that is, oh, can't do that. 
But then the evidence, the proofs in the pudding, the free time that we then get by not doing stupid shit that we shouldn't be doing anymore is 10x. It, it, right. It's like that great feeling of doing it. It's like when you clean out your drawers, isn't it? You know, there's nothing better than going in your wardrobe and cleaning it all out and then, wow, the satisfaction you feel. And then when you go and use your wardrobe again, you quickly find things, you're saving time, you're more effective. So taking that time to do these things, as you said, everyone knows this. Everybody wants to do it, but either they can't speak up through fear, they don't have the permission, they're getting whipped to keep on that hamster wheel. It, it's a real dilemma. So I'm, I'm hoping the uncertainty project is going to really unlock some of these capabilities. Yeah. There's a real fear. You know what you got to do ruthless. here? I just got to throw yeah. this in. You got to con Mari your backlog. What's that mean? Call Murray. Fill me in. <laughs> Don knows what I'm talking you, about. You, you have served me well. Thank you for your contributions. Now here's the trash bin. <laughs> Mari Kondo is a, is, is, is a Japanese uh, uh, organization expert who comes in and teaches people how to organize their houses and wrote and... Uh, uh, Mr. Feng Shui. Uh, <laughs> what, what was the name of her book? The Life-Changing Magic of... Uh, of uh, I have to look it up. Um, I'm having a mental blank here, but but her her fundamental thesis is that you she encourages you every year to take out everything you own in your house and ask right. yourself, does this spill, still bring me joy? And if the answer is no, as John said, does that include your children? Oh, oh, <laughs> she talks she talks about when she did it with one of her clients that she just the, the client decided that her husband no longer brought her joy and she got a divorce. <laughs> But 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 Definitely you lose everything in your hand and you say, is this still bring yeah. me joy? And if the answer is no, you get rid of it. You think it for its service. But I mean, seriously, I mean, yeah. if, you need to do that professionally too. You need to go through and look, you know, why Absolutely. is this in my backlog? Is it something that really needs to be done? Or is it a legacy of something that, that we thought was a good idea that we've moved on beyond, but it's yeah. still sitting there and weighing us down? Yeah. There's one more point about the ruthlessness though. And I, I think one of the other the important topics we see around decision making is prepare to be wrong, right? So, so this idea of this is my choice today, but I reserve the right with new information to revisit this decision. So, so whether you're, you're throwing out your objects around the house, um, you might go buy it later on Amazon because you, you realize you actually wanted it. But, but more often than not, like, look, this is, this is the bold choice I'm going to make today. There's a concept we've talked about called tripwires, where you say, look, it's based on some beliefs I've got, but these are just beliefs. And if information like this, that, and the other comes in by this date, um, I'm going to use that as a tripwire to come back and, and re-engage this conversation. Um, so that safety of being ruthless is something we're still striving for. But one thing I think that would help with that is this idea of let's let's make decision-making a more collaborative activity. When it's a singular leader with the cognitive load and I have to go off and come back with all these decisions come down from the mountaintop, um, that's exhausting. And we know that right. great dialogue, great collaboration is gonna be a key ingredient in our decision architectures. And I do believe if we get this right, it'll create an environment where it's easier to be ruthless, it's less fearful for sticking your neck out, and and obviously the decision quality is gonna go up as well. And, and that goes back to day, humility and courage. Are. Yeah, yeah. That's what we want to do. Bring people is in. improve decision quality. Great stuff, folks. If you're the book that I just referenced was the life changing magic of tidying up by Marie Kondo. I love John, that. it has been a pleasure talking with you. We're going to have to to continue this conversation. Have you on the show again? Sounds great. It's been a pleasure on my end. Real pleasure, John. Good to see you. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.